What's up, everybody? I'm Charlie Marlowe. That's Eric Messersmith. This is Everybody Settled Down. And Eric, true story, this happened. The other day, I'm putting my kids into my truck. I have a six-year-old daughter, two-and-a-half-year-old son. They're both going nuts. And I go, everybody settle down. And I start to kind of chuckle because I really said that. Now, the podcast was probably in my brain, but that is also something that parents say when their kids are going nuts. Yeah, I don't know if we can trademark that phrase. Probably not, but we totally should. We could get merchandise because I feel like it, you know, it not only is a great podcast name, but it's it's catching on, at least with us. All right. So yeah, so we we uh as we discussed last week, we got some time before South Carolina. So I'll start and I have a bunch of uh topics and tweets to talk about. There's always a lot to talk about. But uh, what's top of mind for you, Eric Messersmith, right now in the political realm? Yeah, it's it's a weird period, right? Because you're it lo- again. It, it looks like we know it's going to be Trump and Biden more and more every day, but you still kind of hold out in the back of your mind: Is it really going to be these two octogenarians, uh, or in Trump's case, close to octogenarian in the general election? Are these really going to be the guys? So what I'm watching for right now is because the campaign, you know. It, if it was a baseball game, we're still on the top of the first inning, maybe the bottom of the first. You know, it, it really hasn't started yet. So what I'm watching, of course, is polling because, you know, even though we're nine months out, we're getting closer to the time when polling starts to matter and traditionally correlates more to what we're looking at. I'm looking for any signs of life for Nikki Haley to actually make this thing a contest. <laughs> I think the odds of that are you know, probably less than 5% right now, but you never know. I'm looking for developments in Trump's legal cases because those are the kind of things that could influence the results in the election. And then the other thing is events. We tend to think of, of, what, of politics in a static sense of, okay, this is where we are today. This is how things look today. So that is how they will look in November. And of course, that's not true. I mean, Biden's not going to get any younger. Trump's not going to get any younger, but a lot of things are going to change. Events are going to happen. And there's obviously a big one. We're recording this on on Wednesday morning. But by the time you hear this, we may have struck targets all over the Middle East in response to that drone attack that killed three U.S. service members in, in Jordan the other day. That's a potential huge development, right? I mean, if we, God forbid, got into a war with Iran, that is one of those kind of game changer events that who knows how that would affect politics. And so that is what I'm looking at. Also, and domestically, I'm looking at the immigration bill. That, that we talk, we mentioned this last week, if, if people were listening, immigration is obviously a huge issue. Republican voters had it as their top issue in exit polling in both Iowa and New Hampshire. Record number of illegal of migrants crossing the border in December, over 300,000, which was the most ever in a month. So you have this bill that still hasn't been unveiled but everybody's already talking about it. It's going to come out, they say, any day now. And it would allow Biden to essentially close the border, which he kind of can do now under executive authority. But this would put it into law. It would reform our asylum system. It really, I think, is going to have a lot of things that Republicans in the past have said we want. But now, because of the politics, Trump has come out against this. He's put pressure on Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House. And so what I'm really interested to see is, how does this unfold? Because immigrate as the economy gets better, and, and you see this in some polling where more people are starting to say the economy is moving in the right direction. It's still not a great issue for Biden. I want to be clear. 
people are still pissed that prices are way higher than they were 30 years ago. But if the economy continues to trend as it is, stock market records, low unemployment, the Fed starts cutting interest rates, I think more and more immigration domestically is going to become the big issue of this campaign. Okay, let's kind of go backwards. Let's hit on all three of those. But I want to start with polling, which you brought up at the beginning. And I, I had saw this as well. So it's Bloomberg Morning Consult. I saw it from a tweet from Dean Phillips, who, of course, is running against Joe Biden. But so this is swing states, seven swing states. And just so everybody knows, and I'll put the graphic up here as well. But um, so of these seven swing states, North Carolina is the only one that Donald Trump won in 2020 out of these swing states. And he won North Carolina by about a point and a half. Well, in this latest polling, he's up 10 points in North Carolina. So that's an eight and a half point jump, basically. But he's also up five points in Wisconsin, three points in Pennsylvania, eight points in Nevada, eight points in Georgia, five points in Michigan. I told you 10 points in North Carolina. and Arizona, he's up three points. Joe Biden is leading in none of these swing states. And again, important to note that Joe Biden won six out of the seven of those in 2020. North Carolina, the only one Trump won. And if you do quick math, Trump could could get to 270 Electoral College with just three of those, um, easily four. Now, three, he'd have to have the right ones. But look, Trump could just get about half of those, three, four of them, and he's your president if that polling stays where it is coming up in uh, November. Yeah, and when these swing state polls have come out, and we don't get them often because, you know, usually it's primaries or it's general election. But when they've come out in recent months, they've been similar. And it shows you where the race stands right now, which in national polling, I think the average is Trump around plus two right now. But as we know, polls aren't decided by the popular vote or elections aren't. They're decided by the Electoral College. And in the Electoral College, based on these swing states, Trump is doing better than you would expect from that national average. And it shows you, I think, what we saw in 2016, which is it's Trump could probably lose the popular vote and still win the Electoral College if it's fairly close. And if you look at the betting markets, I just saw this the other day, it, the betting markets still are, are pricing in that Biden wins the popular vote. But Trump is favored right now in the betting markets to win the Electoral College. And that's exactly what happened in 2016. And it almost happened in 2020. You know, Biden won the popular vote by, what, 7 million, something like that, 7.5 million. Trump, if you flipped, well, we know in Georgia he made the call, 5 me 11,000 votes. But it was similar margins in Arizona, in Wisconsin, in, in Pennsylvania, in Michigan. All of them were really close. So that seems to be kind of the, generally where, we, where we're heading is – it's going to be those seven states. Out of those seven, I think North Carolina is almost certainly going to go Republican. That would be, the, I mean, if Biden won North Carolina, he's cruising to re-election. But really, if you look at it, Arizona and Georgia, traditionally Republican states, Republicans usually win them, had long streaks of winning both of them in presidential elections. Biden snapped that narrowly in 2020. Those would be the two I could see flipping back to Trump most easily. If they do... I think electoral, my, my quick electoral map in my head is he'd still be short. Even if he won North Carolina, Georgia, and Arizona, he's still short. He would need one more. And he would You're need right. either Wisconsin, Michigan, or Pennsylvania. And those were the three, if you remember, 
that he beat Hillary in in 2016 by a sliver. Yeah, I was actually just looking that up. And uh, basically, so I think it was Biden, and, and somebody checked me on this. I think it was Biden 306 to Trump 232, if I'm not mistaken, in 2020. So if you give Trump Georgia, which is 16 votes, Pennsylvania is 20, and then Michigan is also 16. So that right there is 52. If he were to get those three states, he gets over the top. But then if you gave him Wisconsin instead of Michigan and you throw in an Arizona or a Nevada, again, it's it's real close. But basically, if he got four of those, and I'm already including the fact that he's going to get North Carolina, but just either three big ones or four of the other six and Trump's your president. Yeah. And that's why I think, look, I Trump's got a lot of baggage and I think some things are going to happen later this year, particularly around the trial of, of trying to overturn the election. It's going to hurt him. But if you're the Biden people, you got to be really worried looking at these numbers because, yes, there's some things that could happen to help you over the next nine months. The economy could continue to improve. Young people could come home back to the party because traditionally they vote Democrat. And in a lot of polling, Trump's showing really, I think, remarkable strength among young people that I don't think is is sustainable. So there's things that are going to work in your favor if you're Biden between now and then. But. Trump doesn't have to beat you in the popular vote. All he has to do is win Arizona and and Georgia, two traditionally solid Republican states, and then steal either Michigan, Wisconsin, or Pennsylvania, where where there are a lot of white working class voters in all three of those states that don't have college degrees, and Trump dominates in that group. And there's a lot of voters in those categories in those states. And so I think that is what get, what should give you a lot of worry if you're Biden and, and what should give you a lot of confidence if you're the Trump campaign is you don't have to beat Biden in the popular vote. All you have to do is be close enough in the popular vote that you can win those states and get over 270. And I am just one person. I am just one man. But I think it's interesting that when I say the Democrats have lost me, that's not that's not the right way to frame it. But it's fair to say that Biden has lost me. And I'm 41 years old, and it's the first time I've said that. And I think there's a lot of people like me who feel that same way. And some of those people may go to Trump. I personally won't, but I don't want Biden. And I think there's a lot of normal, reasonable folks. And it's everything. It's everything we've talked about. We're on four episodes now. But it's also just looking at him and he's too old. And you can comment on that, but also this can maybe roll us into the immigration discussion. You probably saw the video. I've, I've always found it funny. These presidents, it's probably on purpose. They always do these press conferences right in front of the helicopter, right? Where you can't even hear. Right. And so these guys can't even speak anyway. And then you have to, what are you talking about? It's a helicopter in the background. But they're asking Joe Biden about immigration. It's about a 20 second clip. People have probably seen it. And he's like, give me the judges. I've done everything I I can do. Give me the power, blah, blah, blah. And when I see this clip and then I see it on social media and a lot of people that I follow, now some of them are, are, I don't want to say extreme. Others are very reasonable, but I see a lot of comments being like, okay, Joe, yeah, like now you want to fix it. Oh, give me the power. So whatever narrative Joe Biden is trying to push on immigration, it's a losing one. And I I feel like 
three years in, even if there's a bill that solves it a little bit, no matter what Joe Biden, from a perception standpoint, has lost on immigration. Now, can he make it a little better with a bill? Yeah, we talked about this last week. But, but when Joe Biden talks about immigration now, Republicans roll their eyes. And I understand that. Absolutely. I mean, he's been president for three years and it has not gotten better. It's gotten worse. There's two ways that we have to talk about all these issues, right? There's the policy and there's the politics. And oftentimes they get conflated in people's minds. We know in Trump's mind, you know, they're one and the same. And you have to talk about it, I think, in each of those categories separately. In the in terms of politics, Biden's never going to beat Trump on immigration. It's probably Trump's best issue. It's the issue that he talks about the most. It was really kind of the focus of his campaign when back in 2015 when he first launched his campaign. If you remember when he came down that escalator, right? Build the wall. All of that is kind of the thing that's most strongly associated probably with Trump's brand. Politically, you don't you're not going to beat him on that. You don't have to, though. The good news for Biden is you don't have to. But what you do have to do is you have to be competitive. Because remember, a lot of people don't like Biden and Trump. They don't like either one of them. 70% of Americans don't want this rematch somewhere around there. And pull. Yeah, I, you're not alone. I, I'm in the <laughs> same boat. People don't want these two men who are around 80 years old who have all this baggage to be our candidates. And I think the electorate at large is still grappling with this idea of, is it really going to be these two? It can't be, right? There's there's someone, there's some white knight, you know, coming in to save us from this. No labels launching a third party bid or, or Michelle Obama at the Democratic Convention. You know, all these theories you have. Nikki Haley's still hanging around. But most likely, people are going to have to come to the realization it's going to be this too. And then it's a choice. It's not, do I, lo- do I love Biden? Do I love Trump? It's who do I like better? One of these two guys is going to be president in January 2025. Who do I want it to be? And so when you're Biden on immigration specifically, you don't have to win that issue. But you have to at least look like you are trying to do something to make it better. And that's why I've said before, the trend matters. People will look when they start to make up their minds in the summer and, and fall, the people who you know aren't already in one camp or the other. And they're going to say, OK, where where are things? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Is it the same? Has Biden done anything? Has he lifted a finger on this? And so that's why this immigration bill is so important for him, because it's a chance for him to say, you may not love what I, you know, the way I handled the border for the first three years, but I'm backing this bill that was negotiated with Republicans and Democrats that, and again, I want to be clear, we haven't seen the details yet. A lot of them have leaked out, but until we see the final details, I think we all should probably reserve judgment. But based on what we've seen so far, it looks like this bill has come, Democrats have come way further than they ever have before on reforming asylum laws, which is really, you, you want to get to the crux of what's driving this. It's our broken system for asylum. And if if Biden can say, look, I support this. I've come way farther than Democrats have in the past. I'm willing to sign this bill. And Trump is blocking it even though some of the things in this bill are things that he called for to be passed when he's president. Now, again, is that an argument that's going to convince people who who have seen, who are hardcore on Trump's side? Of course not. But he's never going to get those people anyway. What he has to do is make the argument of, I'm trying to fix the problem. I'm trying to make it better. And Trump is the one who's stopping me, even though there's things in this bill that he supported. So I think that is the politics for Biden. And I think Trump knows that. Look, say what you will about Trump. 
He has really good, I think, political instincts. He knows how important this issue is. He knows the stock market is getting better. He tried to take credit for it the other day. He said it's because of me, you know, even though I was president for three years. So he knows the economy (laughs) is getting better. He knows inflation is down. He understands that right now immigration is his best issue and Biden's worst. And so he doesn't want to do anything or to see something done that would potentially make that issue better for Biden. Yeah, and I think it's important to note also that Donald Trump was right on this issue. When you go back to 2015, when he's running, 2016, as you mentioned, it was his number one issue, build the wall. Now, to be fair, I was never against any of these immigration policies. I just never thought building the actual whatever 2,000-mile wall, I never thought that was actually going to happen. I didn't think it was feasible. I never thought Mexico was going to pay for it. Now, hell, could could we actually build that? I don't know. I just never thought it was going to happen at all. But I think it's important to note, though, that Donald Trump was right on this issue. And this is now, that was 2015 he starts talking about. So we got 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 1, 2. I mean, this is nine years. We're into 2024 now. So again, can, can Joe Biden chip away at the immigration piece? If he gets a bill across, Republicans can't run on it as much. But this is a terrible issue for Democrats. And Democrats also need to admit that Republicans were right on this. And it's only gotten worse. Even if you're like me and you never thought a wall was actually going to be built. You know, to me, there's always, okay, a wall here, a fence here, GPS here, border agents here. Of course you need, and I know we do this semantics thing, physical barriers. Yeah, of course you need pieces of wall or fences in in certain areas. Of course, that's always going to be needed. But at the end of the day, Republicans were right on this issue, even if you disagreed with, hey, we were never going to build a wall. Yeah, both sides have positions on immigration that can appeal to people in the middle. And look, in 2013, when Obama, after Obama, Obama won re-election, there was an immigration bill that passed the Senate with 68 votes. And it had, I think, 700 miles of fencing in there. This was before Build the Wall. It had uh, a crackdown on illegal immigration. It had a path to citizenship for people who were brought here illegally when they were kids and other people who had been here for a very long time. It was a comprehensive bill, right? That had a lot of support, but the Republicans controlled the House at the time. They didn't bring it up. And we haven't had any legislation in 30 years. And so getting back to the policy, kind of taking the politics out of it, when Trump was president, he instituted the Remain in Mexico policy, which basically forced people to live in camps in Mexico as they waited on the other side of the border to have their asylum hearings claim, right? Biden reversed that. That's executive authority. So I am closer to Trump's policy there than I am a Biden's. But the problem with that is that leaves it up to the whim of whoever the president is. And what this bill that's going to come out, hopefully this week, is going to do is permanently change the law so that no matter who the president is, it will actually help. I mean, for instance, one of the things, and again, we have to wait to see the final language, is asylum claims being decided in six months. Right now, there are people who are coming into the country. They, they show up at the border. They claim asylum because the word's gotten out. That's all you have to do. You show up at the border. You, you let Border Patrol apprehend you. You claim asylum. You're released into the interior of the United States with a court date for five, six, seven years from now. If we could 
detain people, detain adults, which is what this bill calls for, have asylum hearings within six months. That is a major win in policy. That's that's something Republicans would have, if you would have told Republicans three years ago, you're going to get Democrats to agree to a bill that calls for detaining under Biden single adults who come into the country, having asylum hearings within six months and closing the border when over 5,000 people a day cross on average, they would have been like, no, there's no way Democrats are ever going to go for that, right? (laughs) Well, here it is. You have it because it's been such a disaster and you're in a political year. You're probably not going to get this again from Democrats. And so this is your chance to take the policy win. But of course, what some Republicans, including Trump, feel like is, hey, we might get the policy win right now, but that's going to hurt us politically in November. And and there's something where, look, I criticize Joe Biden all the time. But if there's one thing, if if he does, if there's one thing Joe Biden actually does well, it is allow for compromise, reasonable compromise on a lot of these bills and passing a lot of big time legislation that Trump and other presidents haven't passed. And again, it's not sexy. It's, it's hard to run on the infrastructure bill, the Chips and Science Act, which we have talked about, even in the budget last year. Look, OK, if the Democrats want Ukraine money, we'll give you a 10 percent increase, whatever it was on military spending. Let's make a deal. The game show. There's one part where now I think Joe Biden is a compromiser anyway. Republicans will disagree and they'll say he's controlled by the the far left, but he's compromised on a lot of legislation uh, underneath him, at least. So here's where Joe Biden being a compromiser. Look, if I'm him, you you keep giving more on this issue. Keep giving more until Republicans basically have to say yes, that could happen. Yeah, what you got to be able to look, the best case scenario for Biden is that this passes, the the numbers go way down and he has something to run on going into the election. The the worst case scenario is still not that not terrible for him and that is it passes the Senate or has support to pass the Senate but the Republicans don't bring it up in the House and it looks like to reasonable people what I think is actually true, which is that presidential politics is a huge part of that. And then he because Biden has I, the Biden campaign has not been good so far. I don't I don't think. And and part of that could be because we're so far out and they haven't really ramped it up. But they have arguments to make. And you just laid out a good one, which is Donald Trump talks a big game about doing things. And yes, to be fair to Trump, through executive action, he did in this, especially toward the end of his presidency, really reduce the number of people coming across the border illegally. That's absolutely true. But in terms of actually passing legislation, right, making things into law, Biden has been way more successful at that than Trump, even on things they both tried to do, like, for instance, infrastructure reform. I mean, people have been talking about an infrastructure bill forever to roads, bridges, airports. Trump wanted to do that. Couldn't get it done. Biden did. You know, you could say, well, Congress blocked them. I mean, look, both of them had a Congress of their own party for the first two years of their presidency. They, Trump had a Republican House and Senate for the first two years. Biden had a Democratic House and Senate for his first two years. And Biden was way more successful in actually passing legislation. So that's the argument that I think Biden, one of the many arguments that I think he's going to need to make to draw that contrast with Trump. The question is, does Biden have the energy to make it right. I mean, like there's gonna be a lot of advertising. He's got it. You know, he's ra- his campaign's raised a ton of money. So the ads are going to be there. 
they're going to win that war. But is Biden himself going to be able to make the case in the way that, let's say, Barack Obama made it against Mitt Romney in 2012, when you have that power of the incumbent president to be out there on the stump? At his age, based on what we've seen so far, I I don't know. And this is where I think a picture is worth a thousand words when it comes to, well, not just Joe Biden, the way he looks and talks and speaks and walks, but but immigration. Again, you and I who enjoy politics, and I, I say this lovingly that we're nerds and we like talking about this, none of this is as captivating or compelling as the video we see of, of immigrants or migrants or whoever, asylum seekers, pouring through the borders, which we're now seeing not just from from uh, establishment media, but citizen journalists, anybody can go there and take cell phone video. Hell, my YouTube channel with Kenny Wallace, the NASCAR driver, he happened to be racing in Yuma, Arizona last year. So this was, it might even have been 2022. I can't remember. Either 2022 or 2023. He's racing in Yuma, Arizona. Back in the day when he was a NASCAR driver, one of his big sponsors for a year or so was the U.S. Border Patrol. So he had um, he had uh, sources and he had folks that he knew within that organization. So since he's in Yuma, he's like, well, let me let me tour the border. They gave him a tour. He did a video. I'll, I'll put the link in here. It's super interesting. And this is Kenny Wallace, a NASCAR driver with his cell phone. And you can see the people trying to come over during the day. So what I'm trying to say is like, we talk about the bill and this, will it reduce? But like if every day on social media, all these people see these pictures and images of people pouring over the border, that is way more compelling to influence a vote, in my opinion, than what we're talking about. Or even, even if the bill is, is passed, they can still use those images and they have for you know migrant caravans and all that. That stuff is compelling. It is. And you got to make the case, though. And that's that's the thing. It's about leadership and it's about making that argument and putting it front and center. Look, you are you're I wish we lived in a world where we had a a comprehensive immigration reform where the parties got together and they did common sense things to take care of the people that have been here for a long time to to close down the border, to streamline our asylum process. That's not the world we live in. You don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? Is is this bill exactly how I would design it? No. But the thing is, you're pro- if you're Republicans, you're getting a lot of things you've wanted before, and you're getting permanent changes in law without really having to give up a lot. I mean, there's nothing in here about the the citizenship for for dreamers, from what we what what we understand, like the 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 asylum, the um, allowing people to to stay here who've been here for a long time. So. You have that, but Biden's got to make that case. He, What I would do if I were Biden once this bill comes out is I would go to, to the border. I would go to Arizona and Texas, and I would hold up the bill and be like, I want to do something to actually make this better, and Donald Trump is blocking it, right? That's what I would do. Like, you use the power of the presidency to put pressure, because look, at a certain point, you have to govern, right? The is this bill how Mike Johnson and, and and the conservatives in the House, a lot of them would draw it up? No, of course not. But at some point, you have to show that you're willing to do something and, and fix problems. And the you, you, you got to try to govern and put pressure on people to try to because if this bill came to the floor of the House and Senate, it would pass and Biden would sign it. And so I think that making this the issue 
is going to help Biden. But again, does he have the energy, for lack of a better term, to do that? Okay, and we'll get to the um, the foreign policy stuff, Iran. In in this, I don't even know, is it called a truth, the truth social, whatever the hell it's called. But there's a part about the Middle East in here, but I'll, I'll read this for you. You mentioned it. My buddy sent me this the other day. I guess I should get on Truth Social just so I can follow Trump. But there are Twitter X accounts that tweet out all his deals, so you can just follow those. So here's the uh, whatever the hell it's called, the truth or the X or the tweet. Donald Trump, this is the Trump stock market because my polls against Biden are so good that investors are projecting that I will win and that will drive the market up. Everything else is terrible. Watch the Middle East and record setting inflation has already taken its toll. Make America great again. So I see that and I laugh. And again, he's trying to take credit for the stock market being at an all time high. And here's here's I mean, Trump always loses me on this stuff. And by the way, I understand when people are like, OK, Trump was a great president, but you're so you're so worried about his mean tweets. OK, oh, he didn't tweet nice. <laughs> I understand that argument as well. But but here's the better argument. Because I just see this and I roll my eyes. You probably saw this. It was either, I can't even remember where I saw it. But somebody asked Trump a couple weeks back about the stock market. He had the perfect answer, which is both, in my opinion, pretty true, but also a great political answer. And he said, it's just rich people getting richer. That's the perfect thing to say. Because you can make the argument that the stock market being high, the real estate market being high, it's helping a lot of people with assets. That's a lot of older people. It's a lot of baby boomers. If you're younger, if you're middle class, if you're poor, if you don't own your home, inflation is the tax. You probably don't have a lot in the stock market. The perfect answer was when he said, oh, that's just rich people getting richer. It just looks so petty. And maybe it doesn't matter. It looks so petty when you're trying to take credit like, oh, oh, the stock market is good because 10 months from now, I'm going to win the election. Like, get out of here. Come on. Yeah. Look, I think Trump is right now, we, we mentioned the polling earlier in the show, he's riding high, I think in large part because of some of the lingering unpopularity of Biden, both with immigration, with people still mad at that inflation, even though it's way down, prices are up 20% roughly over three years. And people still see that, they still feel that. And so, but, but at some point, Trump's going to have to come out with some proposals. You know, it's, it's not enough to say, well, this is benefiting, or uh, I, I want to see the middle class benefit. At some point, you have to come out with something rather than just being vague. And Biden does too, to be fair. Neither one of them yet. And that's why I said earlier, the campaign is in the top of the first inning. Neither one of them have really come out with specifics of here's what my second term would look like. I want to pass this legislation. I want to do this thing. It's all been broad stuff. It's all been been broad strokes. And so that is going to matter too, because at some point they're going to have to come out and compare and contrast what their vision would be for the next four years. Both these guys, we look back so much with them because they've been around for so long and they're so old and they have so much baggage, but elections are as much about the future as they are about the past. You're making a choice for who you want to be the president for the next four years, not what someone did in the previous four years, or in Trump's case, eight years ago. So I think that is when we're really going to get into this campaign, is when the choice becomes clear, assuming it is, that it's going to be these two guys, and they start going back and forth with, okay, what does it look like? We know what's happened over the last few years. We know where things are now. What's it going to look like with you as president for in, in 2025 and 2026 and beyond. So in that tweet I mentioned, 
Trump says, or truth, whatever the hell it's called. He says, everything else is terrible. Watch the Middle East. So let's talk about some foreign policy here. And I'm going to throw it to you, but I want to start with this. So you have, again, we're recording this on a Wednesday. I think I'm going to put it on a Thursday. We'll see what happens with Iran. But you mentioned the story of three American soldiers losing their lives. Unfortunately, obviously, our hearts go out to their families. The idea that the world is is more on fire now uh, in foreign policy with with Joe Biden as the president. And I think that's a fair argument. Now, I would contrast and say this. I, I think and this this stinks for Joe Biden. Don't get me wrong. But in my opinion, Joe Biden did the right thing, which no other president did before him when they all could have. And I'm going back to Bush, Obama, Trump. So Joe Biden leaves Afghanistan, which is what we should have done. And Afghanistan was always going to be our generation's Vietnam. It's people our age. And I'm 41. I think you said, what, 44, 45? You know, our, our friends and peers from school are the ones that, that fought in those wars, Iraq and Afghanistan. And Trump, his administration, they basically negotiated the pull out of Afghanistan, but smartly from a political aspect, not, not necessarily what was the right thing to do, but smart from a political aspect, it came after the election. So Joe Biden inherits that, pulls out of Afghanistan, right thing to do, but an unmitigated disaster. Everything, the video, the pictures, the terrorist attack, 13 soldiers losing their lives. Um, so you have that uh, in terms of Joe Biden. Then you have Ukraine, the invasion, the wars going on now, what, two, two plus years, whatever it's been. You have Israel, Palestine. Now you have soldiers losing their lives against these proxies in Iran. People are worried about that. So again, I'm trying to provide context there, but I, I totally understand. And even look, I, I, I agree. It's, it's hard to ignore that it seems like a lot of our enemies are a little more active now under Joe Biden in terms of being the commander in chief and the leader of the free world than they were when Donald Trump's in charge. It does, it does seem like that. Yeah, look, I think it's one of the the good art best arguments Trump can make is there's all this chaos in the world and when I was president, Russia wasn't attacking Ukraine, you know, Gaza wasn't the Hamas wasn't attacking Israel like they are now. Iran was still do, you know, still doing some things, uh but they weren't unleashed like they are now it looks like with their proxy groups. And I think it's a fair argument, but I also think context matters and look, a lot of stuff that happens when you're president good and bad is outside of your control. And that's just the bottom line. What you what what matters is how do you respond? And I think Biden can make an argument. Hey, Putin invaded Ukraine. Putin was already Russia was already fighting in Ukraine while Donald Trump was president. I helped organize a coalition of NATO against them. NATO's added a couple of members since then. And in Israel, I have their back. The, this conflict's been going on, you know, for years and years and years. And, and he need, I think what Biden needs to do is, is like what, what I talked about in immigration. You need to spin it forward. You need to say, okay, what is your, this is the way the world is now. We can blame, you know, whoever we want for how we got here, but this is where we are now. What, what would you do today to try to make it better? And that is, I think, where Biden has a chance, again, if they can make the argument and the campaign needs to make that argument of, okay, Trump says he's going to end the, the war in Ukraine in 24 hours. What does that mean? I mean, what the hell does that even mean? What's he going to do? Just walk in and negotiate a magical deal? He, he hasn't really said what he would do with Taiwan. You know, how would he handle Iran? He's, Iran, he says it'd be tough. Well, if you're 
too tough. You know, if you let's just say we we carpet bomb Tehran tomorrow, Iran probably would respond, and then maybe we're in, we're in World War Three. So there's a fine line to walk there. What I think Trump has been very successful at doing, and I got to give him a lot of credit for this, is he has he has made the Republican Party in a couple of key ways more accepted by people who didn't used to think of the Republican Party in good terms. And then on specifically what I'm talking about on, on this issue on foreign policy is he has helped make the Republican Party an anti-war party. And that was really smart strategically because he came in at a time when, as you mentioned, people were very fatigued because of Iraq and Afghanistan, the loss of life, the loss of, of money, how long they went on, the fact that it didn't seem like we were necessarily achieving the kind of results we wanted, although we did have some successes in both of those countries. And he took advantage of that moment and said, I, the Republican Party in the past may have, you know, been a, been a hawkish party and I'm going to be hawkish on building up defense, but I'm going to be very careful about getting us into any conflicts. And as you mentioned, part of the reason that Afghanistan, you know, went the way it did is because of the actions that Trump and his administration took toward the end to get us out of there, basically at any cost. And we saw what the cost was when, when with the disastrous withdrawal under the Biden administration, which Biden deserves a lot of blame for, I think, in, in how that ended. But it started with Trump getting us out and making a deal, essentially, with the Taliban to get us out. And so Trump turning the Republican Party away from this kind of hawkish, um, aggressive attitude and more of a of a party that tries to get out of conflict is one of I think his signature accomplishments and you got to give him a lot of credit for that because it has helped make the Republican Party more acceptable to certain voters than it was before. So I think though the Republican Party has taken it sometimes too far because I always look at at foreign conflicts in in clearly you don't want loss of life you don't want American soldiers dying for these causes, if, if they're not causes that a lot of United States citizens truly, truly care about. So what I'm seeing with Biden, by the way, so Biden, as we mentioned, he pulls out of Afghanistan, but it's a disaster. It was an awful execution, but it was the right thing to do. And then some of these, these enemies get hostile and they start attacking our allies. And to me, though, you know, we're, we're funding, we're helping allies. Now, it's a different story when when three soldiers die from these Iranian proxies. But I think I'm pretty reasonable when it comes to Russia, Ukraine and Israel, Palestine. And I just feel like, look, I understand we can't help out everybody and we pick and choose. There are a lot of bad actors out there. But if somebody, our enemy attacks Ukraine and if somebody, if Hamas has a huge, horrible, horrific terror attack, against Israel, I have no problem with us helping to fund our allies as long as we don't have American soldiers in harm's way, which for the most part is the case for those wars. So I think reasonable people in the middle can can basically make the correlation and make the difference between being in Iraq and Afghanistan for 10 to 20 years with our soldiers and funding some of our allies. And to me, there is a difference. Yeah. I agree. And I just talked about, I think, the positive from a political standpoint of what Trump has done 
with the Republican Party. But there's the downside of that as well. And the downside is he has lost that high ground, by and large, of promoting democracy and fighting against the bad guys of the world. And that is the now the gap that he has left open that I think, again, if Biden is and his people are smart enough and spry enough, that is how you combat this. You say, okay, Donald, you would solve this crisis. So are you saying you would just give part of Ukraine to Russia? Is that your plan? We know, you know, we know you have admiration for Putin. That is how you combat it. Like you, because there are bad people in this world and there are countries that are not, that are not aligned with our interests. And it doesn't mean that we have to send American troops to those areas to combat those, those countries. And that is the argument that I think Biden can make. And you can't just let, again, from a political standpoint, you can't let Trump get off the hook by just saying, well, I would solve it in 24 hours or it wouldn't have happened if I was in charge. You've got to take the fight to him politically and say, okay, this is the way the world is right now. What would you do? Would you support Ukraine or not? Do you think it's worth defending democracies against you know, authoritarian regimes that invade them or not? How would you handle Iran in the Middle East? I think Because right now it's a very delicate situation and Biden is trying to walk a fine line. You have people pressuring him right now to go out, mainly the, the part of the Republican Party that is still hawkish and is still aggressive. They're saying, bomb Iran in Iran. Well, if you do that, Maybe it works. Maybe it deters them and maybe they their proxy stop attacking us. But it's a hell of a risk because on the other side, may, they have said that's a, Iran has said that's a red line for us. We're, maybe they start firing missiles into Israel. Maybe all of a sudden the, the conflict mushrooms and now we've got a World War III type situation and we're directly at war with Iran, which I don't think anybody, you know, really, really wants. And so Biden is trying to walk that line of, okay, I need to respond. We have to deter them in the future. But if we go too far, then we invite World War III. And and that is, the again, that is how I would turn it around on Trump if I were with the Biden campaign, is I would say, okay, what would you do right now? You know, what, what would Donald Trump's plan be right now? Would you bomb Iran? Would you attack them in their country? Because the benefit of not being in charge when things are happening that are potentially problematic is you can criticize without having to come up with solutions. And that's a tremendous, that has really helped Donald Trump. And again, I think it's why he has the lead he has in some of these swing states right now, because he can criticize some of the things that aren't going well without really having to come up with detailed solutions. But of course, when you get into a campaign, that changes. And now it's it's not just about where were we two years ago? Where are we now? It's what will you do to make it better? So this is in the same realm of, of foreign policy. We both were watching real time with Bill Maher. I, I sent you the clip and you said, hey, I watched it too. It was Seth MacFarlane and Adam Schiff. And this quote is from Seth MacFarlane, but he's saying, and this is to the young voters gravitating to Donald Trump over Israel, Palestine, quote, you're giving up on everything that supposedly is important to you and putting it all on the line for this one issue, end quote. And when I watched that, maybe I'm out of touch. And I would never call you a coastal elitist, okay? Even though you live in uh, you live in LA, <laughs> but I do think now I'm like I'm the everyman. I live in Missouri, but like <laughs> I grew up in Ohio, went to college in Illinois, lived in Michigan three times, and now I live in St. Louis, Missouri. Have for the last whatever 16 years, 
And sometimes I see some of this stuff that the media goes crazy about and social media goes crazy. And I just think, I don't think middle America cares nearly as much. And when I say cares, obviously what happened to Israel is horrific. When I see all the craziness happening on these elite Ivy League campuses and and all these protests, and then all of the presidents and the deans of these schools say the dumbest things possible. And then people are saying, oh, all young voters now are going to switch to Trump because of Israel, Palestine. Maybe I'm wrong because I'm 41 years old. I just find it really hard to believe that students at the University of Missouri or the University of Wisconsin who are going to college are going to switch their votes based on this. Now, or hey, let's say you graduate high school, you didn't go to college, whatever, you work for a trade, you're a plumber, you're an electrician, you're you're going to switch your vote. Let's say you're a union a union guy and that's why you vote Democrat. You're going to switch based on Israel, Palestine. I just think this is one of those things that we pay so much attention to in the media. If you're in that world, if you're on social media, I think most people are like, hey, man, what happened to Israel is horrible. We want to try to end this. We don't want innocent people to die anywhere. I just don't think a bunch of people are going to switch their vote based on this. What do you think? I think that it's one of the problems with trying to read too much into polling in the moment when you're so far out, because we live in a in a we live in this 24 hour news cycle where when something happens, especially if it's a big event like October 7th was and the follow up to that and what's happened in, in Gaza, when you have these huge events, the coverage is so intense and everybody has the, their their opinions and everyone gets those opinions reinforced when they go on social media with the algorithms. And so people get fired up in the moment. And so I believe that people feel that way today on January 31st. But so much is going to happen between now and the election day. Is that is this issue going to still be top of mind nine months from now? And is it going to override other issues? Because I just don't think people vote based on their fourth or fifth or sixth most important issue on election day. I just don't think they do that. I think they vote on their top one or two or maybe three issues. Those are the things that I think when actually people get in the booth or fill out their mail-in ballot, I think that's what's going to drive them. What's going to drive them is on that day, what are the two or three most important things to them? And I think there's a pretty good chance that for most people, what's happening in Israel, again, this is assuming that we don't get into World War III with Iran and, and the U.S. isn't drawn into that. Assuming that doesn't happen, I just don't think this issue is going to be as important and I don't think it's going to be more important than things like immigration, the economy, abortion, January 6th and protecting democracy. I think those are going to be the things ultimately that people are going to vote on, not on this war. Um, I think if you look, another thing, if you look at the polling breakdown and you mentioned this, if you believe that the 18 to 29 year old vote is going to break the way that it's been polling recently, which it fluctuates a lot, you know, based on which poll. But if you think that that Donald Trump's going to get somewhere near half of the 18 to 30 year old vote, which he is getting in some polls, then Donald Trump's going to be the next president. Like if he gets half of the 18 of the under 30 or under 35 vote, he's going to win. It's it's, it's Biden has no chance. So if you believe that, then that's what's going to happen in November. But if you believe that 
it just seems unlikely that people under 35 are going to and are going to abandon a Democratic president for a Republican challenger with all the baggage Trump has, especially with the abortion issue, then Biden's gonna, going to be better in November than his polling numbers are right now. And so I think that's one of the big divides is what do you think that at the end of the day, these young people are going to abandon Joe Biden and vote for Donald Trump or not vote in such massive numbers that that is one of the key questions I think that's going to determine how the election turns out. And I just don't buy it. I just don't think I agree with you that this issue is going to be the motivating force for a large number of people in the 2024 election. And to be clear, I do think Donald Trump is going to do better amongst young people. I just don't think it's going to be this huge amount of people because of this Israel-Palestine issue. If I'm a young person and I hear from them and I, and I work with them, to me, it's going to be more about, okay, if I went to college, I have this huge debt all of a sudden, and I'm not making much money. I don't own my home, so the real estate going up doesn't help me. I don't have a 401k yet, so again, the stock market doesn't help me. This is why the Trump argument of, oh, the stock market's high, that's only rich people getting richer. But if I'm a young person, I understand why, look, this inflation is killing me. I can't talk about my net worth. If you're a boomer, or if you're our age, you have a 401k, you have a house, you can say, okay, I don't like the fact that my family had to pay whatever the amount is, 10,000, 12,000 more dollars a year for the last couple of years due to inflation. But you go, I mean, I remember reading that Federal Reserve report, boomers increased their net worth on average like a half million dollars. Something like 1 million, 1.1. This is from COVID. Basically, 2020, in the last three, four years, look at the housing market's up 55, 60%. Your asset is worth so much more. Stock market, last I looked, what's it up? 40%. Whatever the number is, if you have assets, you have way more money in terms of net worth. But again, Trump may get a huge part of that young vote. In my opinion, it's not going to be because of Israel, Palestine. It's going to be because young people who are graduating college or getting a job out of high school are saying, man, that American dream I always was told about, yeah, it's it's really not that easy like it was for my boomer parents, or I guess if boomers are their grandparents, whatever, whatever, you know. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, and that's why I go back to the, those are the issues I think they're going to define the election. And Trump has an argument to make on some of those other issues. But where the the Israeli-Palestinian peace with young voter, I, voters, I think, really does matter is not so much who they will vote for in 2024. I think what it shows you is young people have a much different view of Israel and much lower levels of support for Israel, the Israeli government than older people do. And that is something I mean, look what's going on on college campuses. That's something that I think is going to change our politics over time, particularly in the Democratic Party. I think you are going to see more and more of a loss of support for Israel in the United States if the government continues you know, as it is. If it changes and there's more of a, a march towards maybe a two-state solution and peace, I think that, that might bring it back. But I think you're seeing dramatic changes based on generational shifts with the U.S. support for Israel, which has always been, you know, in the, at least in recent memory, pretty much unwavering, you know, for the most part. And I think that is what is beginning to change long term. But I don't think it's going to have a huge effect on the 2024 election. OK, so I'm going to both sides this because I uh, I clipped off two Vivek Ramaswamy tweets and I'll read the first one, which I like. And I'll read the second one, which I don't like. Here's the first one. All right. Vivek Ramaswamy. 
it's striking how many of my left-leaning friends uh, chafe at the America First MAGA label, yet quietly agree we need to stop funding pointless wars, seal the southern border, take better care of our veterans, reduce government bureaucracy, and increase American energy production. I 1,000% agree with that. There's a lot of people in the middle that agree with all those things. Now, maybe they don't love Donald Trump, but they agree with almost everything he just said. Here's where he loses me. Maybe this will be our final topic. You brought this up. So basically this, uh, what's his name? Jack Posobiec. I know he's a big right-wing media guy. He says, thinking about when Taylor Swift called out the Soros family in 2019 for buying the rights to her music and then how she became out, how she uh, came out a super liberal in 2020. And Vivek Ramaswamy responds, I wonder who's going to win the Super Bowl next month. And I wonder if there's a major presidential endorsement coming from an artificially culturally propped up couple this fall. Just some wild speculation over here. Let's see how it ages over the next eight months. This is where the Trumpers lose me. So now the Super Bowl is fixed and it's a fake <laughs> right. relationship. By the way, to me, this isn't fringe. When Vivek Ramaswamy, you know this on right-wing media, everybody's talking about this. Everybody's yeah. tweeting about it. Everybody's hating on Taylor Swift. I find it funny. Every time I see that on Twitter, somebody ripping on Taylor Swift, I go to their Twitter profile, and they're just the most political right-wing person. Everything is political. With, <laughs> right. With so, I mean, it's a fake relationship. You know, it's not because Patrick Mahomes is good. He might be the best quarterback in the history of football. He's already won two Super Bowls. No, everything is fixed so that this endorsement for Joe Biden will put them over the top. And that's why Travis Kelsey did some type of ad for the vaccine and Taylor Swift's a liberal. Like, this is where they lose me on the crazy conspiracy stuff, which I think is too mainstream on the right, in my opinion. Oh, it ha it, that is one of the big developments of social media and, and the moder modern times is the rise of conspiracy theories that are some of which are just crazy, becoming more and more mainstream. It happens on both sides, to be fair. But you're right. It's, it's definitely more prevalent on the right. And the, the biggest one, the most prominent one is the one we talked about last week, the election being stolen and how many people have come to believe something that isn't true because of these because of this online environment. And this is yet another example. And, and those two tweets are interesting because conservatives and Donald Trump in particular, I talked about his political instincts. He's done a good job of redefining the Republican Party in a way that makes it much more appealing to working class voters, which is why more and more working class voters are voting Republican. And there are issues there that he can run on. And he, But then the problem is that meal is combined with a side of the crazy. And, and there's a lot of the crazy. And sometimes the side becomes almost the main dish. It's like, yeah, so the NFL is fixed now? I mean, come on. I wonder, I honestly wonder, I'm not sure if, because this is not the first time Vivek dabbled in you know conspiracy theories, if you follow his campaign. I wonder, because he's, he's obviously a very smart guy. And with him and other people like that who are intelligent, who, who are sophisticated, I wonder when I read these things, if they really believe this or if they just know it's going to get them clicks and attention. And sometimes I'm not sure. Sometimes I think maybe it's a combination of both. Maybe they kind of believe it or they think it could be true. But really what they want is the clicks of the attention. I'm honestly not sure. Yeah, but Vivek knows better. That's why maybe I'm asking too much from, from my politicians, but he knows better. He knows that's not true. To me, that's just... 
lowest common denominator. You you can yeah. that's why I brought up the other tweet. You can agree with all of the good stuff about America first or the MAGA, all those good policies that a lot of people in the middle agree with. You can just go there. You don't have to also do all the crazy conspiracy theory stuff. And that's why Vivek, to me personally, and look, this will be the second time I bring up Bill Maher. The first time I ever saw Vivek, I'd never heard of the dude in my life. He was on real time about a year and a half ago. I think it was summer of what, of 22, probably August, September. Here's this young dude, energy. And I'm telling you, Eric, I want, and, and this is where I always give Bill Maher credit. He always has um, people from the right on, and usually early, before I've ever heard of these people. So basically, Vivek Ramaswamy sits on the panel. And you know, those panels probably last 25, 30 minutes, whatever it is. I'm telling you, I couldn't tell you if he was a Democrat or Republican. And that's the biggest compliment I can give someone. I watched him for 30 minutes. It's a year and a half ago. Everything he said made sense. Everything was reasonable. Everything was just, yeah, that makes sense. It's common sense. But then you get into the political machine. You become part of the machine, even if you have good intentions at first. And then you turn to the guy who's, who's tweeting the Super Bowl is fixed because of George Soros and, <laughs> and Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. And that's cuckoo. You're being cuckoo. He doesn't believe yeah. that. And I think it's worse. It's worse when you know you don't believe it yeah. and you still throw the red meat out there. I think that's way worse than the ignorant person because there's some Congress people that actually believe that stuff. I don't right. think Vivek really believes that. He's too smart. That makes it worse in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I He's worse than somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I think probably really did believe you know, some of the that's what I was thinking stuff. About. Yeah, that she has since disavowed. I, I agree with you. It's, it is worse. And it's one of the really sad developments of our culture and our politics in recent years. And I think it is one of the, it is the biggest problem for the MAGA movement to ever become the mainstream governing movement of this country. Like the MAGA movement has made incredible progress at taking over the majority of the Republican party, but to get to the next level and really being, because remember the, the, the thing about Donald Trump is, he won in 16, lost the popular vote, but he won the Electoral College. That's what matters. Since then, MAGA has been a loser. He got crushed in the midterms in 2018, lost 40 seats in the House. In 2020, he ran for re-election as an incumbent and lost, and because of, of him and his actions after the election, lost two Senate seats in Georgia and runoffs that cost the Republicans the Senate. Then in 2022, Republicans did not do anywhere close to as well as they should have in a midterm. They they couldn't win the Senate. They barely won the House when they were projected to win dozens of seats. They even and a lot of those, not all, but a lot of those candidates that lost were Trump candidates that he backed and handpicked, and they won primaries because of his endorsement. So MAGA as an electoral coalition has been since 2016 largely a loser, even though, as you point out, on some of these issues they have strong support. They have people that would agree with kind of the MAGA position on not all, but on many issues. And the reason is because of this conspiracy theory, crazy bullshit that people look at this and like, they say, this is just nuts. This is chaos. And look, the Taylor Swift NFL fix thing, that's harmless for the most part. It's crazy, but it's harmless. But what's not harmless is the post-election stuff. The over trying to overturn the election, January 6th, QAnon, which is like a cousin of this stuff. It, it's a more, you know, lethal form of it. It's a it's a far worse thing, 
But it's it's in that same ballpark of this craziness. And people don't want that. And that's the, that's the argument Nikki Haley makes. She's making it now. She should have been making it months ago, but she's making it now, not to the degree I'm making it. I want to be clear. But she's saying there's chaos with, with Donald Trump. There's all of this stuff that comes along with it. Let's turn the page on that. You can still have these policies you like without all of this. But what's happened is people want that. Whatever that is that Trump is selling, that Vivek also sells, the base, the MAGA movement wants that. They don't just want the policy. They want the policy with a little bit of conspiracy and craziness on the side because they have a chance with Nikki Haley to get not all the policies they want, but most of them. And they're reject for, we'll see what happens, you know, South Carolina Super Tuesday, but they're rejecting that and they're going with MAGA despite the losses that I, you know, just laid out in recent years. The crazy is where they lose me. And maybe I'd never go over, I don't know, but I think people like me. Look, I'm a white dude from Missouri who drives a truck. (laughs) I have a beard, right? If you can't get me, (laughs) but I'm saying like, it is the crazy. I just can't attach myself. And just so people know, I don't want Joe Biden to run either. I'm I'm more of a non-party person than I've ever been in my life because there's so much just craziness on both sides. I don't want to attach myself to either of them. But again, I'm repeating myself, but all those great policies in the first Vivek tweet and what Trump does, I just, you lose me on the crazy stuff, man. I just, I don't want to attach myself to that. I don't want any part of that. It's just lunacy. Yeah, I'm the same way. Like, I'm from a town in central Pennsylvania, 50,000 people. Like, I grew up a a pretty hardcore Republican, but I don't consider myself a Republican these days. I consider myself an independent. I'm registered as an independent. And look, I've moved a little bit to the left. I'm not as conservative as I used to be, but I'm certainly not a liberal. I'm not like on the Bernie AOC. I'm not, you know, with that for the most part. I'm back and forth. There's things I like on both sides. I want to see negotiation and compromise and moving things forward and good governance. And I don't really want either of these two people, Biden and Trump, to be our candidates. I wish both were parties nominated somebody better. But at the end of the day, the difference to me is what you just said. There's just, again, both parties I have huge problems with. I don't want to give the Democrats a pass because they don't deserve a pass. They've done a lot of things I I disagree with. And they've, I think some of the actions of people on the left have led to some of the things I don't like with Donald Trump and his coalition, some of the condescension and the shutting down of debate and calling people names and looking down at people that has helped fuel Trump. Because one of the things people love about Trump is policy is not necessarily first and foremost. It's a gut level. And it's that guy, not only does he talk about things like I talk about things, but the people who hate him are the same people that hate me. And whether that's true or not, that is a huge part of the appeal of Donald Trump for for the people who love him, is they look at the people who hate him the most, the media elites, people at universities, people who are, you know, really well-to-do, heads of corporations, media, um, Hollywood elites, and they think that the people who hate Trump the most are also the people that hate them. And that that is a bond to them with Donald Trump that I think people miss sometimes. And they try to define his his people as racist. Or And look, are there some racists who support Donald Trump? Sure. But by and large, that's not it. By and large, it's this is my guy. And it's about more than policy. 
But again, that that same thing that draws people to him also draws other people away. And that at the end of the day is what, what is going to, what it's going to come down to. And people are going to have to make that decision. And that's where Biden, I think has his opening to say, I'm not the chaos guy. He's the chaos guy. I'm the guy who you may not agree with me on everything, but I get, I can get things done. I can pass bills. I can, I've kept assuming he does. He can say, I kept us out of a war in the middle East when one could have happened. I can, I can do these things and you're not going to get the crazy. You're not going to get the chaos. That was fun, man. Everybody settle down. Episode four, Charlie Marlowe, Eric Messersmith. Comment, like, subscribe. Let us know in the replies. What do you think about what we said? Throw some questions in there. I'll jump in there and uh, answer them and uh, share the channel. Share the videos if you like them. Put them on social media. Put them in your group text with your friends. Eric, good times as always, man. Appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Fun as always, Charlie.